Merry Christmas. I just got to say that was the worst any crowd has done all weekend. I just got to say right up front. Merry Christmas. We're glad you're, glad you're here. We're going to have 12 Christmas Eve services. Just want to keep telling you, uh, nine of them here at this campus. Uh, nine of them are going to be live right here at this campus. I hope that you'll come. I hope you're planning Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday. We got four on Sunday, three on Monday, two on Saturday. Uh, find a time and make sure you check the times because, you know, they're going to be different every year depending on how things lay out. Hope you're inviting people. There's an Evite online you can go do. There's a, there's ways to, there's a card that you can get people. Just invite people and get them here. Let me say one more time to uh, my Sunday people, I want you to start thinking about, not, not now, not, not in the next couple of weeks, but after the first of the year, like January 5th and 6th probably won't be that big a deal because the kids are still going to be out of school, but the 12th and 13th weekend, we will have the largest crowd. I already know this. I mean, I, I, you know, I could preach on, you know, donuts and it wouldn't matter that weekend because that's when the New Year's resolutions come in. That's when everything starts to happen. That's when all the people that are going to come back from Christmas Eve are going to show up. We need you to leave here and go to Saturday night. We need you to be on Saturday night. Let me ask for a show of hands. How many families have talked about it and said, okay, we're going to move over to Saturday night. Let me see your hands. Put your hands up. Okay, I need 100 families. Some of you just made that decision right now. Way to go, Okay. <laughs> I really need a hundred families to go out and get out and just for three months. I'm not asking you to do it for the rest of your life. Just January, February, and March until we get up to Easter. That's our, that's our biggest time. I mean, that's when we're going to actually, the, the police department's going to allow us to have people back out on the street for those three months. We're going to, you know, that's, that's like, that's like go time for us. So we need you to do that. All right. Play, think about doing that. Um, we are going to talk about chapter 12 today. If you're visiting, you're wondering what's going on. We're doing the story. 31 weeks all the way through the entire story of the Bible. It's all in here. This is all taken from Scripture. We just left out some of the other stuff and made the important stuff happen in here so that you could see it all. Okay? This week we're talking about David again. Why? Because there's 62 chapters in the Bible on David. Why is that? Because he was a little guy with a big God. I talked about that last week. And his brother was a big guy with a little God. He didn't have much faith. And his name was... Nobody cares. Exactly. See? See what happened? You forgot about him already because he was a big guy who had a little God, a little bit of faith. David was a little guy with a big faith, and, and so there's 62 chapters in him in the Bible. And we get all the way over to Acts in the New Testament, and God says, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Can we not forget this? Because we're getting ready to talk about the crummy stuff that David did in his life. Really bad stuff, worse than you've probably done, that we're going to talk about today. And I need you to remember that he was still the guy that's, that, that killed the giant. He was still the guy that wrote most of the Psalms. He was still the guy that you know, was a man after God's own heart, but he messes up today. And in fairness, I'm glad that we don't have to look at my life over and over again for thousands of years and look at all the times that I messed up. They interviewed a hockey goalie one time. They said, how do you like playing in the NHL? And he said, well, it's, it's great. I love it, but, but it's a lot of pressure. I mean, how would you like it if every time you made a mistake, a red light went on and everybody could watch it on instant replay? I mean, that's kind of what's going on with David today. And I think it's good that we understand that perspective and that we start there because everybody makes mistakes. It's kind of ironic, but there's only about four or five chapters in David's life as king. That same thing seems to be going pretty well. It's in uh, 2 Samuel 8:15. It said, David reigned over Israel doing what was just and right for his people. 
And, and, you, and you just like, you get through the beginning part of his life and the giant and his brothers and, and Saul and all this stuff and you get to the point where he's finally the king and you're like, oh, this is so awesome. I so wish that we could just stop and make this a fairy tale and say, and they all lived happily ever after. And it could have happened. But somehow David lost his focus on his relationship with God. He lost his focus on God, period, and everything goes downhill. And there's a definitive moment that we often look towards because it's pretty obvious, um, as the moment in which it looks like David went downhill. And it says this, It's in spring, and it's the time when kings go off to war, and David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Such, a, such an obvious verse, right? It's time, it's time for David to go to war. It's, it's time whenever, that's, that, that's what he's supposed to do. But all you got to do is just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm not going to war. I'm going to call in sick today. I'm not going to do what God asked me to do. And all of a sudden, everything can go downhill in a real hurry. All right. After 20 years of leading these people, after 20 years, he just decides, he wakes up one morning and says, hey, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, you know, I'm going to relax. I'm going to do whatever else. He got lazy. And I see it happen all the time. And it's a great reminder to me. Because this is, you know, I've been here for 23 years. Been leading this church. It's a great church. God's doing amazing things. And all I have to do is wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm not going to war. And all of a sudden, I become another one of those stories that non-Christians point at and go, see... I know that. I understand that. So, we've got to ask ourselves, how did this happen? How did this happen? How, how does it get to this point? Because I don't believe ever anybody wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think I'm going to screw up my life today. That is not what happens. So, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to pretend like today is a movie uh, uh, with flashbacks. You know, you go to movies and they're like, there's this storyline, and then every once in a while they pause and they do a little flashback back to try to explain how they got to this point. And I don't think that this whole story started at the beginning of chapter 12 there. It was spring and time for kings to go to war. I think it started before that. Here's what I mean. Here's one example right here. After even, this is before, okay? You have a little flashback, put the little cloudy thing in your mind for a minute, okay? Now we're flashing back. After he, met, after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. David took more wives. I think that's where it started to go downhill. Now, that was normal in society for a king to have a whole bunch of wives. But it was forbidden by God. You go back to Moses, and God told Moses, the king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. I mean, what is that? That's like a prophecy of what we're going to read today, isn't it? David violated this principle. Now, you're going to ask me, what's many wives? I don't know. More than one is many, too many. Okay, that's all I know. But, but you can't have many wives because what's going to happen if you have many wives? You're, they're going to worship many gods. You're going to go different directions. And we're going to find that out with Solomon next week, right? So for what is probably the millionth time as the pastor of this church, can I just say this thing? If you will listen to God and obey God, you will not screw up your life. I have to tell you that because I'm the guy, we're the people that are always on the other side of it after you fall off the cliff. We're the people that are always there, the pastors are here for you after you fall off the cliff. And what I would love to do is get you to just put the brakes on, or at least put it down into first gear for a minute today, and think about what's going to happen when you fall off of the cliff. Because here's the deal, there's a lot of things that society says these are okay, and God says they're not okay. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians. Are we going to listen to the Creator, or are we going to listen to the collective idiots of creation? That's your choice. 
There's your tweet moment for the day. Are we going to listen to the Creator, or are we going to listen to the collective idiots of creation? Are we going to listen, in other words, to the shepherd, right? Or are we going to listen to the other sheep? It might have been okay in that society to have many wives, but God said that's not a good idea. And He even gave him a reason why. And you know what? I'm sure David read that. David's read Deuteronomy a whole lot of times. And I can guarantee you, I know what David said every time he read that. He said, well, it's not going to happen to me. I got this. I'm okay. I can take on some more wives. I'll be fine. You know why I know he said that? Because <laughs> that's what I say when I read something in the Bible and decide that I don't want to listen to it. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. Either that or he said the infamous, well, that was written a long time ago. Times were different back then, right? I mean, that was like Deuteronomy. That was Moses. It's Second Samuel now, for crying out loud. Times are different, right? <laughs> listen. I guarantee you, if you could talk to David at the end of his life, he would say, man, I wish I would have listened to God when I was younger. How many wives do you need? That's not a trick question. (laughs) Somebody asked Mark Twain once, where does it say in the Bible that you can't have more than one wife? And he said, "Uh, Jesus said, thou shalt not serve two masters. Ba-doom, boom. Um... Part of the many wives thing for David is, is about, it's about, it's about you know, political unions. We understood all that and how that all went. But part of it was just that David liked the ladies. Can we just be honest? I mean, nobody wants more, more women to sleep with so they can have more mothers-in-law. Am I right? Can I get an amen? No, 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 that's not it. There was only one thing on David's mind when he was putting on all these wives and concubines. And that's a great lesson about sexuality and a great lesson about the reality of lust and the lust for more. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but that new car is not going to make you happy because there will be another new car that will come out after that. You know, that new job is not going to make you happy. That new relationship is not going to solve anything. For crying out loud, David had all the passion, all the sex he could have possibly wanted. He already had many wives before we get to this story today. How does this happen? It's called the lust for more. That's how it happens. It's one of those sins that never gets satisfied. It's why pornography is so dangerous, because you're never going to find enough. And I wish I could tell you some stories of people's lives that started off with a pop-up window and went all the way down to uh, divorce and prison and unbelievable things. That, 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 that's the problem with it. You're always going to want, want, want more. So watch what happens to David with his problem. I mean, he, can't, he has no internet back here, so he has to actually go looking for it, right? One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on top of the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Let me just start and get this issue off my chest, okay? Why was she on the roof naked? Does anybody want to ask that question? I mean, Bathsheba was either being very careless or she was deliberately trying to get the attention of the king. I mean, it's not like she didn't know his balcony was up there, right? Women, could you help a brother out? Can I get an amen from you guys? Could you help a brother out? I mean, come on, for crying out loud. Here's what Paul told Timothy. I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. 
Here's what I will say, because my name's Timothy. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety. And I know you're going to say, oh, it's December, Tim. What, what, I mean, what do you expect? And there's no, we're not going to be naked. It's December. It's cold out. Yeah, but there's still the health club. You know, there's still your Facebook profile. There's still texting. There's still suggestive things that you do. And you need to help a brother out. And I know you're sitting there right now saying, ah, oh, PT, you don't understand. You're just an old fart. You don't get this. Listen, A, I'm still a guy. And I get this. And B, I have three very beautiful daughters. And two of them have already found the man of their dreams. And the other one, I'm sure, is going to. And they did it without dressing immodestly and indecently. They found the right guy because they dressed the right way. Okay? I know that. I don't know what kind of bottom dweller it is that you're trying to attract that way, but knock it off, okay? It's an obstacle. Romans, Paul said in Romans, so then each of us will give an account to our, of ourselves to God. Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. So help a brother out. That's what I want to say. So David was on the rooftop when he should have been at war. And Bathsheba was on the rooftop when she should have been inside. And everything went to hell in a handbasket. Now, this is still David's problem. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Always 100% David's problem. I don't care if it did pop up, in your, you know, pop up on your screen or showed up in your inbox. It's still your problem. David should have turned around and gone back to one of the uh, women that he already had and left this alone. But he didn't. So David sent someone to find out about her. You can't help the first look, guys, but you can help the second look. You can help the zoom in with the video camera, right? David said, hey, who's that woman next door? The servant said, what, the naked one? <laughs> David said, oh, what, is she naked? Uh, who, who is that? I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I'm reading between the lines, but listen to what he says. This is, this is why I think the servant is like on track, and he's like, David, you're an idiot. The man said, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I think he said that with emphasis. Why do I say that? Because in a genealogy, when you were describing somebody back then, you never listed their spouse. He's making it very plain. Dude, this is your friend's wife, and you know this, and you should know better. Listen to me. This is really important. When you're about to fall off of a cliff, when you're about to fall off of a cliff, God usually gives us one more warning. He usually does that. And it's really important that you understand this. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, God sent an angel to Lot. When it was, when it was Nineveh, God sent Jonah. When it was Simon Peter getting ready to do something dumb, Jesus said, you're getting ready to do something dumb. Usually God will give us one more warning. That's what's going to happen. And maybe this sermon is going to be this for you, okay? Maybe you're getting ready to make an enormous mistake. Maybe you're already hanging off the edge of the cliff. There's time to change it. There's still time to change it. Let this be a warning to you. So David sent his messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. This is a man after God's own heart. How could he do that? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his work on temptation, said it this way. He said, here's what happens to God. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh, and at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and the only desire for the creature is real. So the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken away. You forget about God because you're all about the moment. And we can't tell if she's a willing participant or not. You know, but I have to think that if Bathsheba would have wanted to say no, 
She could have said no. I mean, her husband was a very important military officer in David's army. And I have to think that if she really wanted to, she could have said no. And I don't know why she didn't. And maybe, maybe that's not true, but I want to help you with your no today. Can I help you with this? Okay. I want to help you with your no. Because it's really going to be important at some point that you say no. And I'm going to help you with no in, in, in a very unique way. It's going, to, it's going to be something that you'll never, ever forget when I help you with no. And it's going to come in the form of an answer to a question that I know has been burning a hole in your mind for a long, long time about me. And your question is, if I ever took Tim to a karaoke bar, I wonder what song he'd pick to sing. I know, it's been right there in your frontal lobe for a long time, hasn't it? I wonder what he'd be. And I'm going to give you the answer, and it's going to help you with your no. It's from an 80s southern rock group called the Georgia Satellites. And since I am never going to go to a karaoke bar with you, I just decided I'd just go ahead and do it right now. Here's your no. Johnny B. Keep your hands to yourself. Yeah, sing it with me. You know, come on. It's a good song. Cruel baby, 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 why do you treat me this way? You know I'm still your lover boy. I still feel the same way. That's when she told me a story about free milk in a cow and said no huggy, no kissy until I make a wedding vow. My honey, my baby, don't put your love upon the shelf. He said, don't feed me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. Oh, that's good song right there. That's good music. Woo! There you go. The answer to your question. Johnny B and the karaoke players. All right. My daughters had to memorize that song before they went to kindergarten. That's a good song right there. Just say no. Here's why it's important for you to say no. Because the pain of reaping is always going to exceed the pleasure of sowing. I couldn't, I couldn't be more passionate about this right now. The pain of reaping is always going to exceed the pleasure of sowing. What happens? The woman conceived and sent word to David saying... I am pregnant. Here comes the accountability. Here comes the bad stuff. Because there's always going to be accountability. There's always going to be bad stuff. You're always going to get caught one way or another. It might be your spouse. This woman caught her spouse cheating. And I think she did a nice job on his car. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but even if your spouse doesn't catch you, friends, even if your spouse doesn't find out, Something's going to happen. It's going to catch up with you. This is why you never see a, an ad for a, for a bottle of vodka with a wino on it, you know, and the homeless in the street. This is why you don't see, did you know the first Marlboro man died of lung cancer? I mean, they don't have a picture of him in his coffin on the cigarette ads, right? They, they don't put the, how many miles you're going to have to run on the ice cream ad to burn off what you just ate. 
Why don't they do that? Well, this is smart. Actually, it's a state law. If you ever go to California, it's fascinating. There's state law. They have to list the calorie count for everything that they sell in California. It's a weird day when you walk into In-N-Out Burger. I want to tell you right now. It's like, uh, I'm going to turn around and walk out. There's nothing I can do in here. I would love to be able to put a calorie count on sin. I would so love that. I would love that, you know, just write it out. Here, here, adultery. Here's, here's what could possibly happen. And you just look at this story of David and you, you know exactly. So what's David going to do? Uh-oh, she got this, got this woman pregnant. Well, she's got a husband. I'll bring her back for more. So he brings her back for more. He brings him back. He said, hey, I, I want to know how the war's going. Send Uriah back. I want to talk to him. So he brings Uriah back and, and he says, hey, Uriah, how's everything going? And he thinks, you know, this is this will work out because there's no CSI. There's no DNA testing back then. And people will go, well, it doesn't look like Uriah, but he did come home that one night from war. So this all makes sense, right? Yeah, it would have made sense, except Uriah was an unbelievable man of honor, a guy I want to meet in heaven someday. Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Uriah said to David, look, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country. So how could I, a man, a soldier of honor, how could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you're starting to see this now. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a class A jerk right now, isn't he? And he's being shown up by his friend Uriah, who said, I'm not, I'm not going to come back from war and, and be different than anybody else because they're all out there, so I'm going to be a soldier. Da- David sleeps with another man's wife, even though he's got plenty of other wives, because he has no honor at this moment. And Uriah refuses to sleep with even his one wife because of his honor. David even goes on and gets, tries to get Uriah drunk, and Uriah still says no, because Uriah had more character drunk than David had when he was sober. I love that. So, what is he going to do now? Watch the snowball keep turning. So in the morning, in the middle of page 162, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, and in it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. And then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. You picture Uriah going back to the battle lines, handing Uriah a note from the king, or handing Joab a note from the king, and Joab opening it up and it says, kill this guy. That's basically what it is. This is how far David has drifted away. This is how one thing leads to another leads to another. And it didn't happen overnight. It just one thing led to another, and it may be where you're at today. Just watch what happens. So while Joab has the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. And moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Did you notice something there? It wasn't even just Uriah that died in battle. Other men did too. Other people were affected by this. Other children were going to grow up without their fathers. Other wives were going to be widowed. Other mothers were going to mourn their sons while David was snowballing this one thing that he decided to do. That's called collateral damage. That's what that's called. It's called the ripple effect of sin. And many of you listening to me right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have lived 
in collateral damage. Somebody else screwed up your life, screwed up your family, and you've been living with this ripple effect of sin in your life. You've got to be able to see it. And you know what else is really sad? I mean, I've kind of alluded to this along the way, but there's only one reason why Bathsheba's house was next to the palace. And that is that Uriah was one of David's trusted, mighty men. He was one of David's friends. I mean, you don't just walk in and get a house next to the palace one day, see it on multi-list, and go, oh, this is a nice location. I think I'll move here. I mean, they had their some surrounded. He had himself surrounded by all the people that he knew he could trust and the people who thought they could trust him. And that's what happened with David's lust. And it appears that David gets away with this for a while. Uh, Bathsheba goes and mourns her husband. And it says, after the time of mourning was over, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Because God sees everything. He sees our thoughts. He sees our heart. He sees our intentions. Everything. The Bible says, be not deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he is going to reap. So David feels like he got away with it for a while, and he covers it up for a while. But after about a year, almost a year, this prophet guy, this friend of David named Nathan comes to him, and he says, hey, i got to tell you a really sad story. There was this guy who had one little sheep, one little lamb, and it, it was the family's lamb, and it was their pet, and they loved this little lamb, and they only had one. They were poor. And there was this other guy, this rich guy, and he had all of these lambs. He had flocks of sheep. He had plenty of money and plenty of things. And he decided to throw a party. And when he threw a party, instead of slaughtering one of his own lambs for the party, he went and stole the one lamb from that one guy and took that lamb and killed it and served it to his people. And David was mad. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said, well, that would be you, buddy. And immediately David realized he was busted. And Nathan told him the consequences of his sin that the sword would never leave his house, that things were going to be a mess. Please don't miss this, okay? I don't want to dwell on it because we live it a lot, but don't miss this. God forgives, but the consequences don't go away. The consequences don't go away. That's why I'm trying to keep you from falling off the cliff in the first place. The son born to David in Bathsheba dies. One of David's sons rapes his half-sister, one of David's other children. And then the brother of the half-sister, who is another one of his sons, kills the son that raped his half-sister. And then Absalom grows up and decides he wants to be king and tries to pull a coup. And it's like the Jerry Springer show at David's house from pretty much that point on. And they did not live happily ever after. And David was still a man after God's own heart. But the period of time in between, it was spring... The time when king go to war and David died and was buried with his fathers could have been so much better if he hadn't given in to sin. Please understand that. Now, I'm going to tell you the redemption part of it in just a second. I want to take another flashback. My friend Kyle Eidelman preached about this story. He had a very fascinating point. He said, you know, a lot of times we look at a situation, we look at somebody going downhill, and we say, well, how did that happen? And we look kind of at the immediate circumstance. Kyle said, maybe we ought to go back and look at the first wife David ever had. His first love. The one that he really loved. the, The one that was special to him. Her name was Michael. 
I, I want to explain this to you. Michael, and it sounds like a boy's name, but it was spelled a little bit differently. And, and she was the daughter of Saul. One of the things I didn't tell you last week is that um, when David killed Goliath, there was a reward. Saul had issued a reward, and he said, whoever kills Goliath is going to be free from taxes for the rest of their life, and they get to marry my daughter. So David got free from taxes for the rest of his life, and he got to marry Michael. Michael was the daughter of Saul, and she loved David, and David loved her. Okay, so, so it's, like, it's like one of those Disney movies, you know, where the, the guy wins the battle and he gets to marry the love of his life and they live happily ever after. And it could have been. I mean, even though her dad turned into a psycho and kept trying to kill David and all these things happened, David and Michael were in love. And by the time you get to 2, Kings, 2 Samuel 6, you find out that, that David's life is going pretty good and his kingship is going pretty good and his marriage seems to be going pretty good. And one day, they bring the Ark of the Covenant in from wherever it's been somewhere else and they bring it into Jerusalem and David is such a he's such an artsy guy you know he's just so emotional that's that's why we, he read he wrote most of the Psalms he's so emotional that when they bring the Ark of the Covenant in David is just so happy he starts dancing he starts doing a jig because he's so happy that God's Ark is being brought back to Jerusalem from where it had been taken and he's so and he gets so worked up it says that he danced it says quote with all of his might I mean, he's like just really going at it. He's really dancing. And evidently, he just got too hot or he just got crazy. And he took his robe off and he was literally dancing before the Lord in his underwear. I mean, it was, a, it was an undergarment. It was an under robe. It wouldn't have been like, you know, it would have been for us. But it was still, you know, it was still kind of embarrassing for his wife, Michael, who was watching from the window. And she was very embarrassed about the whole thing. And she's a little resentful of it. So it says in 2 Samuel 6, when David returned home to bless his household, in other words, he came home from a good day's work, you know, and he's like, hey, you guys, bless you. The Ark of the Covenant came back today. He's all happy. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And here's what she said. Right out of the gate. Catch the sarcasm here. Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Nice, right? He comes home from his day of celebration, and the first thing she does is sarcastically attack him. Really nice. So what does David do? Well, I don't know if you understand the law of marital arguments or not, but the next step is to attack your in-laws. So David comes back with this. Am I right? Oh, well, you didn't like it? Well, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anybody else in your family that I brought the Ark of the Covenant back. That's beautiful, isn't it, right? And he says, I don't care what you think. God chose me, and I'm happy. And the fight, and that's how the fight started, as they say, right? And I really think it was a beautiful moment for David, as weird as it was that he decided to disrobe and do the, you know, naked dance before God. I really think that's what he was, he was really had a pure heart, but it embarrassed his wife. And here's the funny thing. The story ends, and all it says is, and Michael had no children until the day of her death. Now, you could read into that anything you want to. I mean, maybe it was just a coincidence, or it could just be really blatantly obvious that their marriage ended that day and that's why there weren't going to be any more children because there wasn't going to be any more of that anymore. And the last thing we hear about Michael 
is this. You never hear about her again in Scripture. And you have to ask yourself, why, why did the Bible give us such a specific detail about this weird little marital argument? And it, and it makes me think, if we're doing a flashback right now, if you could flashback back to his early love, back to the love of his life, and you said, I wonder how David snowballed down to the point where he's just committed murder, and now the whole kingdom basically knows about it. How did it happen? And you have to go back and say, well, I wonder what would have been different if David would have included Michael in on the celebration. Or what if, if, if he, you know, he, he brought her in by his side. Or what if Michael would have been encouraging to her husband and he walked in, she would have given him a big hug and just celebrated with him and then, you know, maybe brought up the naked dancing thing later on, you know? What if David would have just listened to his wife and tried to understand her perspective and how embarrassed she was? What if there wouldn't have been sarcasm right out of the gate? What if, what if criticism would have been replaced with praise? What if there would have been no personal attacks? What if somebody would have said, I'm sorry? What if somebody would have said, you know what, I, I, I would love for you to forgive me. I, I, I messed up. What if, guys, what if David would have fought for the wife of his youth in the same way that he fought against Goliath? How would that have changed the whole story? Eidelman said, I'm convinced that the stories of our marriages and of our families are written in the seemingly insignificant moments of day-to-day -day life. And I think that's true. It's never, it's never the, I'm out of here moment. It's never the, oh, he's on the roof, and all of a sudden, boom, everything goes downhill. It's never the big moments. It's always an accumulation of the small, daily, little moments. Kyle even told a story. He said there was a storm where he lived in Louisville and a tree had blown down. And he went over to his neighbor's house where the tree had blown down. And he was kind of watching a guy cut it up. And, and he went over to the guy and said, man, that must have been some storm to blow this tree down. And the guy said, nah, it wasn't a storm that blew this tree down. He said, come here and look. And he took him around to the other side of the tree. And he could see that the underneath side, the roots had decayed. And the tree was dying from the inside out. He said, the storm is just what finally blew it over. I'm not taking the blame away from David. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer, he was wrong, okay? But there's probably a whole lot of other underlying things that have been going on before he got to that point. Now, there's no way we can avoid the sin and the consequence, but we've got to come back to the redemption in the story. One way that I know that David was a man after God's own heart is something that takes a little digging to figure out. Because uh, after Nathan comes and tells him the story, David immediately repents. And David immediately says, I'm sorry. And, and that's one of the ways that we know this. And what's even better is there's something in the Christmas story about David that's really fascinating. I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, but, but, but when you read the genealogies of Jesus, there's one in Luke and there's one in Matthew. And they don't match up. Go home and read them. They don't match up. The, the one in Matthew goes from, you know, Adam to David, and then it goes through Solomon, and it goes down to Joseph. The one in Luke goes through another son of David. It goes from Adam to David, and then another son of David, and takes it in a completely different line. Skeptics use this to say, well, the Bible doesn't make any sense. You know, the Luke and Matthew don't even have the same genealogies all the way down to Joseph. Scholars explain it pretty easily by saying, you know what, if Mary didn't have any other brothers, then Joseph would have been considered a son of her father as well. And, it, and, and the only explanation is that Mary and Joseph both came from the house and lineage of David. 
Which would make sense since Joseph's not really the father anyway. If you're really going to make the prophecy happen, Mary's got to be from the house of lineage of David at the same time. So maybe that's the explanation. That doesn't really matter. That's not the important part. I want to show you the name of the son that Luke took the line down through. Look at this. Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. He was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mattatha. Then we skipped a whole bunch. Son of Nathan, the son of David. Listen to 1 Chronicles. These were the children of, born to David. There were Shammu, Shabab, Nathan, and Solomon, and their mother was Bathsheba. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Here's why I know David was a man after God's own heart. Because normally, when somebody comes to you and says, you know what, you're screwing up your life, you need to fix it, they're usually not your best friend from that point on, are they? I mean, normally there's a little bit of pride, there's a little bit of resistance, and we want to go, you know what, forget you, you know, I'm going to live my own life. David is so humble, he is so repentant, that not only does he still love the prophet, David and Bathsheba named their son after the prophet who convicted them, who busted them out in the first place. Now listen, I really don't want you to name your kid Timothy, okay? But I hope, I hope that if you are sitting there right now realizing that you are screwing up your life, that you are screwing up your marriage or your family, I pray that you will be that humble and that repentant to say, you know what, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do something different. I'm going to change my life now before it goes snowballing down to where David's did because I realize I'm headed in the wrong direction. Maybe you should just go home and read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the recorded journal entry of David the day Nathan came and confronted him of his sin. It says, Psalm 51, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is it. This is what he said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I can still be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Repentance leads to redemption. And I want you to notice this. Repentance leads to redemption, but I want you to notice how fast it happens. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Just like that. As soon as David said, I have sinned, God said, I have forgiven you. There's no period of time in between. There's no penance time. There's no things that David had to do. He just had to admit that he messed up and God said, okay, I'll take away your sin. And it is the same for all of us, my friends. It is exactly the same for us. There is redemption in this story. It is so easy to see redemption in this story. How could you not see redemption in this story? If David could be a man after God's own heart, after he committed adultery and murder and did all of this stuff, then what do you think? you got a problem. God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. Whether you are David in this story, 
or the mostly, maybe all innocent bystander Bathsheba, or the completely innocent collateral damage Uriah, or Michael, who had some responsibility. I mean, every place along there. You can relate to whichever person that you want to relate to. Here's what I understand. Many of you are hurting this Christmas because you've been on the wrong end. You've been collateral damage. You've been the people that have been hurt by somebody. And it's Christmas time and you're, you're angry and you wish God would have stepped in and done something different. Many of you are hurting because you realize you're the one that screwed it up. You are the man. If Nathan was here, he'd say, you are the man. You are the woman. There's really one simple message for all of us this Christmas. When you bring your sin to Jesus, the Lord will take it away. And when you bring your pain to Jesus, the Lord will take it away. I preached pretty hard today because I, I want to help you to avoid ending up in that situation. And it's so obvious how bad David's life turned out after he snowballed out of control. I don't want that to happen. But I'm going to love you anyway. And we're going to love you anyway because God loves you anyway because Jesus died for you anyway. You need to understand that. Again, if, if David is a man after God's own heart, then what's your problem? What have you done worse than David? You can be a man after God's own heart. You can be a woman after God's own heart no matter what you've done. All you need to do is turn around and say, God, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to, to save me. I need you to wash me and make me whiter than snow. Can you imagine that? I mean, the day that Nathan confronts David and David pours out his heart to God in repentance, he says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He had to be feeling lower than a snail. He had to, you could tell from his writing that he is so repentant and so sad out of how he screwed up his life, but he still believed in a God who could make him whiter than snow. And he didn't even know about Jesus yet. And you do. Jesus came and he was born in a manger and he spent 33 years on this earth. Why? So that he could love you if you are on the bad side, if you're the collateral damage, if you're the one that people have abused and they have hurt, he can love you because they abused and they hurt him and he understands. And he came and he spent 33 years here so that you would know that Jesus knows, that God knows how you feel. And then he died on a cross so that he could pay for the times that you're on the other side and you're the one that screwed it up. It's an amazing story. Let's commune together. God, I pray that you'll be with us right now. Jesus, I pray that you'll help us understand how much you love us. I pray this Christmas song and this Christmas card helps us to remember that we are loved. That's a hard message today because we've all been in this place where we decided to stop listening to you, where we stopped listening to your voice and we started doing the things that screwed up our life. And some of us have played, paid some pretty dear consequences for the things that we've done. And it hurts. But Lord, we know that you have forgiven us and that you can make us whiter than snow. And yeah, some of the consequences aren't going to go away, but we know that you will be with us as we try to make as many of them right as we possibly can. And as we move forward in our lives and start over, that we can be whiter than snow. And Jesus, we know that you're also there for those in this room who 
are feeling like the Uriahs in the room. They're feeling like the people that got killed in battle so that David could just take care of this indiscretion and didn't have anything to do with it. I pray that you'll be with them and help them to know that they're loved too. And if there's people in this room that don't have you, Lord, let them just open up to you right now and say, Jesus, at Christmas time, I have decided that I'm going to believe in you and I'm going to accept your gift of salvation and I'm going to give my life to you and I'm asking you to cleanse me and make me whiter than snow. I'm going to follow you now. And for all of us as we commune right now, we realize that you understand our story. And we can see that from this tragic story that we study today that you can still love us through the middle of it all. So be with us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.